Welcome to the CJC Weekly Bible Study, where CJC stands for Complete Jesus Christ. If your perspective of Jesus is based only on teachings from the New Testament, then your understanding is incomplete. Regarding what we often call the Old Testament, Jesus himself said, These are the very scriptures that testify about me. So won't you join us today in our study where we esteem the newer and the older testaments alike. I'm your host, Jeff Smith, and currently we're working our way verse by verse through the first book of the Bible, Genesis. (laughs) All right, Genesis chapter 26. Genesis chapter 26, we're going to be picking up at verse 12 today. Last week we looked at verses 7 through 11. The title of last week's study was Like Father, Like Son in Mistakes. That followed on the heels of the previous study, which was Like Father, Like Son in Blessings. Genesis chapter 26, verse 12. Somebody mind reading this verse? Isaac planted crops in that land, and the same year reaped a hundredfold because the Lord blessed him. Excellent. Thank you, Mike. In this situation, this is the first mention we have of any of the patriarchs farming. All right? We've had shepherds, uh, but this is our first mention of farming. And then the mention, this is pretty amazing, the mention that in that same year he reaped a hundredfold in that same year. So here it's pretty amazing because of the amount and also that it was that fast. That's not typical for your planting endeavors. I can't help but notice, though, when I run across that word of a hundredfold, it reminds me of a parable that Jesus ended up telling and that we have recorded in Matthew chapter 13. In Matthew chapter 13, variously called the parable of the soils or the parable of the sower, and it ends with using that same word, that same word of a hundredfold. We don't often use that word. What does that mean in Genesis chapter 26, verse 12? Well, it means that he got back a hundred times what he put into, what he invested into that field. I guess in our day and age, if you were to liken it to investing in maybe the stock market or something, if you were to put a dollar into something and you got back a hundred dollars for your every dollar that you put in, you could see, ooh, that's pretty cool. That's great. You know, we're happy if we just double. That's a hundredfold, all right? But we can experience this kind of return according to the parable that Jesus tells us and that we have recorded in Matthew chapter 13, verses 3 through 9. And 13, 3 through 9, Jesus tells this parable, and he says, A sower went out to sow the seed, and he goes and he sows the seed. He's planting seed. He's casting seed, right, as they would do in that ancient agricultural communities. They would pull the seed out of a bag, and they would toss it, all right? Toss it here, toss it there. And it ends up in the parable, he ends up tossing some of the seed on the path, all right? There's a pathway. So in this agricultural community, you don't have sidewalks, you don't have streets, You've got trampled down dirt for pathways, and if it's a big enough pathway, it's, it becomes a road or, or a street, if you will. So, you know, some of the seed is invariably going to get on some of the packed down dirt areas of, like, the path. And some of the seed is going to be cast out into areas where, you know, in the soil, you want to get rid of most of the rocks, but some of them you're just not going to be able to move. Some of the rocks are pretty close under the surface, so you're going to have some places where there's rocks, and some of the seed falls into the areas where there's rocks. All right, and then some of the seed you're going to cast out, and sometimes it's going to end up growing among thorns, maybe among young thorn bushes that are going to grow up at the same time that your seed is going to grow. And then some seed is cast out into good soil. Jesus gives an explanation of what the parable means later on in that chapter, verses 18 through 23. And his disciples, in pulling him aside privately, kind of want to know what's going on. What, what, what does that parable mean? And he gives an explanation. He says, the seed is like the word of God. And all those different types of soil, that's kind of like people in their response to the word of God. And one of the interesting things about it is in each of those situations, they all hear it. 
So the parable is only about people that hear the word of God. There's not included in the parable people that are not hearing the word of God. All right, so think to yourself now of a group that's hearing the word of God. In most of our situations, that might be the congregation or the, the church that we go to, and you're sitting among a bunch of people listening to the word of God. But it doesn't mean that they're all good soil. Some of those are going to be rocky soil. Some of those are going to be a path. Some of those are going to be you know, having thorns in their life. And so he goes on to further explain what, what ends up happening is in some people's life, if they're like the path, if they're like that trampled down dirt, it's like the seed gets cast into those lives. And as he was telling in the parable, the birds come and pick it up and take it away before it ever really has any chance to even sprout. Okay, And he says that's like those people that you might be sitting among. In the congregation or in the church where you're listening to the word, they're hearing the word, you're hearing the word. And for some, they don't understand it. Jesus says that's the actual key element to that part to those people. They don't understand. They hear it, but they don't understand it. And it's like as, as if Satan comes as one of those birds and takes the word of God and just makes off with it before you have a chance to have it do anything in your life the rocky soil where there's rocks underneath and there's rocks mixed in and there's not a chance for that seed to grow much it sprouts it springs up with joy for you know a little tiny bit but what happens the sun comes and it starts to beat down on that persecutions and trials come along and it ends up being that there's not enough root to sustain that thing and it ends up withering away it's like the word of god gets into some people's lives and they're like yeah this is great but then persecutions come and tribulations come and they don't have enough depth enough root to sustain them through those times. It's like rocky soil. And they end up withering because they don't have that depth. Right? And then what is it? Some of the other seed, it ends up being cast out among thorns. All right, what are the thorns? It's those things that grow up with the fruit and the thorns end up choking it out. Anxieties in life. Cares of this life. The deceitfulness of riches. All right. Those are the kinds of things that are like thorns that move in and start to choke out those plants that would otherwise be fine. It's not a lack of depth. It's actually being choked from being surrounded by these anxieties and these fears and the pursuit of riches, All right, the deceitfulness of riches. And so there's no produce. There's no crop. So the last group is what? It's the seed that's cast out into the good soil. The seed that's cast out in the good soil, what? it sprouts up. It doesn't have thorns choking it out. All right, those thorns have been removed. Those thorns have been thinned out. There's no rocks. The rocks have been removed. It's not hard dirt. It's been plowed up. It's good soil. It's able to grow. And it says what Jesus says that you can expect from that. You would see what? It's the person who hears. It's the person who understands. It's the person who produces fruit. And what ends up happening, you can see a crop, a bounty come from that, a 30, 60, or 100-fold. A 100-fold. We just marveled just a few seconds ago about how amazing a 100-fold is when we can experience that same kind of return. But what makes a difference in our lives? Well, if we think that we've got anxieties, right? If we've got anxieties in our life, what is that? That's thorns. It's going to want to choke you out. What would be the recipe for that? What do you need to do about that? You need to get rid of those anxieties. How do I get rid of those anxieties? Cast all your cares upon him for he cares about you. You need to be able to trust in God to the point that you can actually cast those cares and anxieties over to him. Otherwise, they're going to choke you out. Okay, rich is the pursuit. I need to make some more money. I, I've got too many bills and those kinds of things, those kinds of pursuits, they're going to choke you out. That's like the thorns. What do we need to do? We need to seek first the kingdom of God and all these other things will be taken care of. All right. What do we do if we've got that hard ground? All right. God, break me. All right. God, plow my heart. All right. Plow me up. All right. What do we do if we got rocky soil? You got to get rid of the rocks. All right. You got to maybe do some hard destruction work to get rid of some rocks. All right. But we can experience a hundredfold increase, a hundredfold return, just as Isaac experienced it over here. 
Moving on from there, Genesis chapter 26, verse 13. Somebody mind reading that verse. Actually, 26, 13, and 14 together. Somebody wouldn't mind reading those two verses together. And the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants, so that the Philistines envied him. Excellent. Thank you, Ron. We're reading these verses and some of the words that pop out as Ron is reading in the ESV or depending on your other translations. Very rich, many possessions, prospered or prosperity or prosperous, okay? These are words that we like to hear, right? <laughs> Anybody ever heard of a prosperity gospel? Yeah. Yes, mm-hmm. prosperity gospel. If you haven't heard of it, typically it goes like this. God wants you to be rich. He can make you rich. So if you're right with God, he'll make you rich. And if you're not rich, then there's a problem with you. You must not be right with God. That's kind of the way it goes. And sometimes they don't tell you the bad news until the end or in the small print. All right? That if you're not rich, it's your fault. All right? As if riches are a direct correlation with a life with God. That's not how the Bible teaches it about riches. All right? So you need to be careful with stuff like that. The Bible does support God prospering us or blessing us. Um, one of the verses is uh, 3 John 1, 2. Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things. I love that. I, I'm, I'm all for that. But there's not a period there. <laughs> okay? It says, Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. Just as your soul prospers? I can't give money to my soul. All right, I want to win the lottery, but I can't give the money to my soul. So it must be riches in some other form. If it's not money, if it's not material, then it must be something else. It must have something to do with the inside. 2 Corinthians 9.8 says this, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. And sometimes we emphasize that word abundance. We look at that word as the key to the verse, but that's not the key to the verse. The key to the verse is the grace. All right. What is it? And God is able to make all grace abound to you. It's about grace. We can be rich and the riches are in grace more than in materialistic things. All right. We hear the materialistic part and we go, that's what I hear. That's what I want to hear. That's what I want for me. But really, we need to be careful about that. If we're pursuing riches in a materialistic sense, we're missing out on some bigger riches. We're missing out on the more important riches. Mm-hmm. Ephesians three twenty and 21. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. And we look at that immeasurably more, right? Like that's the part we want, but it's about within us, according to his power that is within us. It sounds like these verses all have these riches phrases associated with some sort of in you thing, with some sort of non-materialistic thing. We have a word of caution. Jesus gives us a word of caution regarding prosperity as our goal. It says, and he said to them, take heed and beware of covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. Our life does not consist in the things that we possess. And then finally, one other passage here. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 through 10. This is Paul's teaching. And he's got other places he teaches as well. I'm just narrowing it down to one. Now, godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness with contentment is great gain. We might seek riches. And to the person who might seek riches, Paul's advice is pursue godliness and contentment first. Pursue godliness and contentment. That's where your riches are. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing with these, we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. 
For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. You've heard that one before. That's a very famous passage. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. So it sounds like the riches that the Bible would have us to yearn for are not materialistic riches. We should be seeking to be rich in soul more than rich in salary. We should be seeking to be rich in grace more than in greenbacks. We should be seeking to be rich in power of God more than precious metals. We should be seeking to be rich in godliness rather than gold. And we should desire contentment in place of covetousness. That's the kind of riches that God wants us to pursue. One last warning that Jesus gives in Matthew 19.23, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. As for God blessing us with material riches, he can. There's nothing actually wrong with those things. All right, Those things in and of themselves, that's not where the problem lies. It doesn't say that money is a root of all evil. It's the love of money that is the root of all evil. So it's not that money is a problem. It's our affections that we often overly devote to them, to those types of things that actually leads to the problems. I used to wish to be rich. When I said just a few minutes ago, even I was, I was saying uh-huh. I, I want to win the lottery, as I was saying that, I was somewhat disingenuous because I actually don't want to win the lottery, mm-hmm. Okay. There was a day when I used to. I'd be going to college, and I'd be low on my bills, and I'd be like, God oh, could pay anything, and surely he can. And we had some friends, and they came up with an invention. It was like this simple little game that was bought out by one of those big game makers. It destroyed them. It destroyed their marriage. It destroyed their relationship with God. They were dust after they got this windfall of money. And after I saw that happen, it caused me to take a second look when I would go through the Bible and I'd run across passages that had to do with riches or wealth or money. And I would see it in a different way, that these things can destroy you if you're not able and blessed by God to be able to handle it. And I tell you what, I know that it would probably destroy me. All right. I've got somebody in church that we're good friends with, and God does shower the money on them. But it doesn't destroy them. They know how to use it for God's glory. They know how to make it work in God's kingdom. And so God can trust them with that. And God does. He just showers on them. They can't hardly give it away fast enough. In my situation, I know in my heart of hearts, I'm a stingy person. I know in my heart of hearts that I am just the shallow, selfish person that what would I do with it? And my mind goes to things that the kingdom of God doesn't come to the top. I've got all these other things. Oh, I would get this kind of car. Oh, I would get myself this kind of house. I would go live in this kind of place. And then I'm like, oh, wait, but maybe I should be thinking about something, you know, in the kingdom of God. That's why I'm glad I'm not getting rich by God with riches because the kingdom of God isn't first and foremost that comes to my mind like that. It's like second or third or fourth. And I'm ashamed to admit that. But I think I'm in good company. I don't think I'm alone. If I am, then that's the area God's working on me. But I'm glad God's not blessing me with riches. Verse 15 Verse 15, now the Philistines had stepped up all the wells which his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father, and they had filled them with earth. This actually goes on the tales of the end of verse 14, right? So you've got verse 15, the Philistines are filling up the wells. Isaac is out there with his great amount of flocks, his great amount of herds, his great amount of agricultural type of stuff. He needs a lot of water, right? And so what happens at the end of verse 14? They're envying him, right? They're envying him. And what do they do out of their envy? They fill up the wells. They fill the wells with dirt and with rock and make it difficult for him to water his crops. 
and to give water to his herds and water to his flocks, all right? In this environment, you need water. And in his situation with that kind of riches in flocks and herds and, and crops, he needs a lot of water. And they, out of envy, are filling it up. You know, it's one thing to take it away from him. It's one thing to chase Isaac's men away and say, we're taking this for ourselves. And they could actually benefit from the water. But by filling it up, it's useful to no one. They're filling up just, it's out of spite. It's out of mean. It's out of envy. Mm-hmm. All right? Sometimes when God blesses us in our lives, there are people that are watching. And out of envy, they want to make life difficult for us. And we're like, God's just blessing me and somebody wants to make my life difficult? What is up with this? And it's part of human nature. People just want to mess with somebody else. It's like the people who go by and key other people's cars. They don't even have a relationship. Usually it's a nice car and somebody wants to destroy it just because somebody has a nice car and I don't. How selfish is that? But that's the kind of same thing we're seeing here. This is keying his well. (laughs) He's filling in the well. Now the Philistines had stopped up all the wells which his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father and they had filled them with earth. And then verse 16, And Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. The last time we saw Abimelech and Isaac, you guys remember, it was just a few verses ago. That was when Abimelech was calling Isaac to account for this behavior that he was engaging in with the one he was saying was his sister. And it's actually his wife, right? And he says what? He makes this proclamation. I'm making a rule that anybody in my kingdom, don't touch him, don't touch her. Leave him alone. But he lets them live in the land. And now he's getting rich. Now he's getting powerful. And now Abimelech wants him to leave. It wasn't when Isaac lied to him. I would have thought, you lied to me. I'm the king of the land. You lied to me. I'm going to kick you out. You put my people at risk. I'm going to kick you out. But he didn't. But now that he's getting rich and prosperous and powerful, now he wants him to leave. That's kind of strange. His priority there is kind of strange. But he's, he's saying, I want you out. I want you to leave. You're too powerful for us. You're too prosperous for us. So what happens in verse 17? Then Isaac departed from there and pitched his tent in the valley of Gerar and dwelt there. So he's moving further away from that place where he had that indiscretion with his wife, claiming it was my sister, and then he engages in behavior that gets witnessed by the king of the land. All right, He's moving away from there, but it looks like God is moving him to the place God wants him to be. All right, So he's now moved out into the valley of Gerar. Verse 18, And Isaac dug again the wells of water which they had dug in the days of Abraham his father. For the Philistines had stopped them up after the death of Abraham. He called them by the names which his father had called them. By the way, calling those wells the same name that his father had called them is a way of establishing or reasserting ownership over them. He's basically saying, these are my family wells. All right? And by calling them the same names that his dad had called them, he's basically saying, my dad, these are my dad's wells and my dad passed on and now they're my wells. All right? So it's an assertion of ownership. Verse 19, also Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found a well of running water there. This one's a little bit different than the other ones. Because you dig a well, and typically what happens is you dig a well, you got to go down, right? you got to go down to wherever that water level is. And you don't know where it is. It could be 20 feet down. It could be 200 feet down. It could be more, all right? My uncle, he lives on land, and his water is well water. And they had to dig that well some hundred feet to get down to where the water level was. Well, here's what ends up happening with wells, though. If the use of the water is faster than the replenishing of the water, your well runs dry, You have to go deeper, all right, or you have to start another well somewhere else and hope you hit water at a higher level and hope, you know, you got a way. Is it going to be easier for me to send my man down 100 feet and we pull out buckets of rock and dirt and soil? 
or is it going to be easier to start another one, you know, somewhere else, and hopefully we hit the water level a little closer to the surface, okay? What do we have here? This isn't the water that's way down at the bottom of the well. This isn't the water that you need the bucket on the rope and send it down there on your little winch. Weep, 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 weep. And it goes down and you get the water and you, you pull it back up and it's got a bucket of water. This is what? This is a fountain. This is, they found a well of running water. This is a spring. They got a spring. What happens on a spring? The water fills up by itself. It comes to the top and overflows and makes like a little trickle or a little stream depending on how much is coming out. This is like hitting the jackpot when you need water. All right, it's a replenishing supply. It's just coming up, and it's from the plates of the earth, and it's pushing down, and that water's under pressure. And you tap into it, it's like coming up. Here it comes. So they hit a place of running water. So that's even more valuable because you don't have to send anything down to bring up your little bucket of water. Your water's coming to you. All right. Verse twenty. But the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdmen, saying, The water is ours. So he called the name of the well Essek because they quarreled with him. The word Essek means quarrel. Does this sound familiar, though? This is kind of like what happened with Abraham and Lot. You remember Abraham and Lot, and they had these big flocks, these big herds, and it was there wasn't enough room for them. And they ended up fighting over the land. They ended up fighting over the resources because they were blessed by God so much. So here's another situation. We've got this fighting, except it's not two people on the same team. All right? You got these people and you got these people. And I can imagine, you could probably imagine too, how the argument probably went. Probably went something like this. You know, you've got the herdsmen on one side, and it's the people that live in the land. You've got the herdsmen on the other side that dug the well. And the people that dug the well, they're like, hey, we dug the well. And what's the other side going to say? This is our land. Look around. You just came here. We've been living here since before you were a twinkle in your mom's eye. All right? You guys are the visitors, and you dig well all you want. It's still our land. And you can imagine the arguments that would go along those lines. All right? Verse 21, then they dug another well, and they quarreled over that one also. So he called its name Sitna. Sitna means accusation or hostility. Uh, so imagine a hostile accusation. You, blah, 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 blah. No, no, you, blah, 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 blah. You know, you got this hostile accusation thing going on. By the way, that word there, that uh, word Sitna, it's related to the word, the Hebrew term for Satan. All right, which means accuser. So here you've got a hostile accusation. It's related to that word that means accuser or Satan. What's Isaac's response in all this? Is he going to war? All right, all my men, I want you guys to grab your swords. We're going after him. We're going to annihilate that other side, and we're going to take our will back. No, that's not his response. Instead, he seems to be adopting the attitude or the mentality that we find described in Proverbs 19.11. Proverbs 19.11 says, A person's wisdom yields patience. It is to one's glory to overlook an offense. It sounds like Isaac is maturing in his trust of God. All right? It sounds like he's maturing in his ways of dealing and behaving uh, with outsiders. Verse 22, And he moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. So he called its name Rehoboth, because he said, For now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. Reminded here of Romans twelve seventeen a repay no one evil for evil. Isaac's been trusting God, and they take they come in, they argue over the well, they take over the well. That was a lot of hard work to dig that well. But you know what? What does he choose to do instead of fighting over it? You know what? We'll move a couple miles over. We'll dig another well. And that's what he seems to be doing. And then in verse 23, 26, 23 says this, Then he went up from there to Beersheba. Beersheba is a place that we've seen before in conjunction with the sending away of Ishmael, all right? So the sending away of, with Hagar and Ishmael, Isaac was a child back then. We don't know how old, but you remember there was that weaning party, all right, maybe four, maybe five years old. 
All right, and we have uh, one of our first mentions of Beersheba over there at that time. So Isaac was born, and he was a child. And then we also have Beersheba mentioned in conjunction with God calling Abraham to take Isaac and sacrifice him on this mountain of which I will show you. And we realized over there that he was like 37 or something in that neighborhood. So for the most part, it looks like a lot of his childhood and growing up years were in this area of Beersheba. And that, and we find in verse 23, seems to be where he's come now. It seems God has moved him from these other places back to a place that he's got roots, all right? Back to the place where he grew up, and that's Beersheba. Verse 24, and the Lord appeared to him, this is Isaac, the Lord appeared to him that same night and said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bless you and multiply your descendants for my servant Abraham's sake. And this follows the pattern that we've seen that God appeared to Abraham and gave very similar words to him. And then even God appeared to Isaac early on in this chapter and said very much the same thing. Very on in the early part of this chapter, as well as here when God appears to Isaac, both times though, he mentions this interesting thing. We can't discount that there's a relationship, two relationships being mentioned. Number one, a relationship between God and Abraham, all right? That God and Abraham had a personal relationship, all right? And it's a relationship between Abraham and Isaac, between Abraham and Isaac. Basically, God's saying, because of the relationship I had with your dad, I'm going to bless you, all right? I wish that it was still that way in the sense that I could say, because of a relationship that my dad had, I could ride the coattails of whatever glory he touched with God. But I don't have, my dad didn't have that relationship with God, all right? He still doesn't to this day. He hasn't died yet, so it's not too late. Right. <laughs> Are you listening, Dad? <laughs> But in another sense, there's this. Have you ever heard the phrase, God doesn't have any grandchildren? All right. We, if we're in God's family, we're adopted into God's family as his children, but not as his grandchildren. If your parents have a relationship with God, that doesn't buy you rights to access to God. That doesn't secure you eternal life. It doesn't make sure that your sins are forgiven. All right. So we all have to have that personal relationship with God, not vicariously, not through our parents, not through somebody else in that sense. So there's a whole other study we could do there. Here's another thing as well to mention about this. When God appears to Abraham, eventually God, in his appearance to Abraham, Abram, he, he gets a name change, right? It was changed to Abraham from what? Do you guys remember what his name was before? Abram. Abram. So his name changed from Abram to Abraham. And in Isaac's son's case, Jacob, we're going to see Jacob have a meeting with God, and there's going to be a point where his name is changed. But we don't have a name change going on here with Isaac. Isaac doesn't get a name change. <laughs> That's kind of interesting. Verse 25, so he built an altar there and called on the name of the Lord, and he pitched his tent there, and there Isaac's servants dug a well. Two things to point out here. Number one, he pitched his tent there. We've talked about this quite a few times, but I just want to repeat it once more. He's living in a tent. He's not living in a stone house. All right? He's going from place to place. He's a sojourner. He's a wanderer. He's a vagabond. And that serves as a model for us. That this is not where I'm called long term. This life here on earth, this is just, we're just living in tents. All right, this is just a tent right now. All right, there's a day coming that there's a city whose foundation is the Lord, right? And we're looking forward to that day. There's going to be permanence there. But we're just passing through this time right now. We're in the passing through stages. All right. And then finally, the last word of that verse there is well. They dug another well, another well. The word well or wells have been mentioned seven times so far. And then there's several places that have alluded to these wells. There's a whole lot of well digging. There's a whole lot of looking for water, all right? And in a dry and arid land, you need water to survive. If you don't have water, you're going to perish. 
All right. So all this talk of wells, I can't help but take us to John chapter 4, and we'll finish off with this. John chapter 4, and I'm going to paraphrase a lot of this. John chapter 4, you've got uh, Jesus and his disciples. They're passing through the area of Samaria, and they end up coming to a place where there's a well. And the guys are like, uh, we're going to go into town. We're going to get some fast food. Uh, we'll be right back. And Jesus is hanging out at the well, and a woman comes out in the middle of the day. Why are you coming to get water in the middle of the day? You're supposed to come get water when it's cooler, maybe in the morning, maybe in the evening. Some reason why she's coming out. Anyway, Jesus has a conversation with the woman at the well, and he ends up saying, hey, give me a drink. And she goes, what? You're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. We don't get along. Haven't, you, haven't your parents raised you to recognize we don't, we don't talk to each other? And he says, I tell you what. I've got access to water that you don't even know about. And she goes, what are you talking about? You don't even have anything to draw water with, and the well is deep, right? So there's that picture of that well, and the water's way down there, and you got to have something to bring it up. And she's like, you got access to water? You don't even have a bucket. You don't even have a rope, all right? How are you going to bring me some water? And he goes, I tell you, the water that I've got is living water. And she's like, huh? What? What are we talking about now? <laughs> and he says... If you would ask of me, I would give it to you. I've got living water. In fact, the water that I have, I've got a fountain of water. I've got water that would come gushing. I've got water that gushes up to eternal life. And the story ends up that she's confronted by this person who she recognizes as something more than just a mere man. And she says, my understanding is that at the end of time, the Messiah will come and he will explain all things to us. And she's already thinking along those lines, like, this is something weird. And she's kind of like asking, is it you? And he answers the question she doesn't ask outright. He says, the one you're speaking about, that's me. I am that one. And so the end of the story is what? The living water isn't about liquid in that story, right? She comes to find out that what he's offering to her is something to satisfy her, not physical thirst, but spiritual thirst. Jesus offers to us a wellspring of water, of eternal life for our soul that's parched and weary and thirsty. And so if we go through this life, and in a spiritual sense, we are thirsty, we're dehydrated, we're looking for some sort of satisfaction spiritually, and he's got what we need. And if we don't get it in this dry and weary place, we're going to die. We're going to die unless we take from him what he's offering to us, and that is that he is the Messiah. All right, so we're going to end with that. Let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to meet together with you again. We thank you, Lord, for our brothers and sisters. We pray that you would help us, Lord, to lift each other up as the week goes on. You place upon our minds things that we should be praying for or things that we should be giving you praise for. And we pray, God, that you would help us to encourage one another and all the more as we see the day approaching. We thank you for this wellspring of water that bubbles up in our lives that we have available to us that you would provide for us, Lord. And we pray that you would help us to come and drink often, that you would help us, Lord, not to just say, Mm, I've had my little sip and I'm good to go. No, but Lord, that you would have us coming morning, noon, and night, just drinking from what you would provide. We thank you, God, for providing. In Jesus' name, amen.